Well, greetings. It's good to be with you. It's an honor to preach here. So I am so thankful for the ministry of Brother Bill and for Brother Todd. And it's been neat to see what the Lord has done. Having known of this church even before it began and of the vision the Lord put in Pastor Bill's heart and so many of you who are a part of this and have been a part of it and seen what the Lord has done. So it's an honor to be here this morning. If you would take out your Bibles and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This weekend, as has already been mentioned, we've been looking at apologetics, which doesn't mean saying you're sorry. Um, as I was once accused, I was doing an apologetics conference and had someone write me and they were quite upset. And they said, why do Christians keep apologizing? You don't have Muslim apology conferences. You don't have Hindu apology conferences. Why is it that Christians keep apologizing? And uh, we read the passage that that word actually comes out of, out of um, Peter's writings when he talks about us having a defense or an answer for people who ask a question, um, question our faith, that we should always be ready to give an answer. He uses a Greek word, apologia, which is the word that we get the idea of apologetics from, which just means giving an answer to people's questions, giving a defense for the truthfulness of the gospel. The very first night of our youth retreat, we looked at Romans chapter 1, in which the Apostle Paul outlines two ways that people often reject God, either through living for themselves, through their own sensual pursuits, living for pleasure. And then in Romans chapter 2, Paul talks about the ways that people try to establish their own self-righteousness. So whether it's by being what we might just consider being really bad or by real, being really good, apart from God, both lead to despair. We see this in the writings of King Solomon. I grew up being told that King Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. And then I remember as a young adult actually reading Solomon's writings and feeling like I'd been lied to my whole life. Right? Has anyone else ever had that experience? Like, this is what wise people do? And King Solomon made some really stupid decisions, but God redeems it as he does for all of us. See, there's nothing that's wasted. Um, it may not have, it certainly wasn't God's will for Solomon to sin, but in turning it over to God, God's able to redeem it and work all things together for good to those who love him. And so in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, he concludes that he's an older man, he's an aged man, and he concludes the end of the matter. If you look at verse 13, Solomon writes, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that through me as I talk about this passage, I pray that your spirit would administer the truth to our hearts as was so eloquently prayed earlier, that you would take this as seeds and plant them in our hearts. Lord, we know that we can't do this on our own. We need your spirit to do this, to apply your word to our hearts. So we pray that you would make our hearts soft and eager to receive this word. And Lord, I pray for those who might be here with hearts that are hard towards the things of God. I pray that you would, through your spirit, through your grace, that you would open their hearts and break that thick shell that they've created to protect themselves from what they feel like would be missing out on life 
if they really submit to you. Lord, I pray that we would see in this powerful little book of Ecclesiastes that the only way to have true joy is to quit trying to do it all on our own apart from you. I pray that you would accomplish this for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. There's a powerful scene in a a movie that's a few years old now of an aged veteran. He's standing in front of a tombstone and he turns to his wife and he has family members standing around him and he asks his wife to come stand next to him and he's looking at this, this headstone and he turns to his wife and he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. And he's recounting a great sacrifice of the person who's buried there. The person who's buried there in the movie is a man named Captain John Miller, who's played by the actor Tom Hanks. The aged veteran is Private Ryan. The movie's about how Private Ryan, three of his brothers, are killed, and Captain John Miller is sent in to find and retrieve Private Ryan and deliver him home to his family. This family having lost three sons, the premise of the movie is that as an act of mercy, they're going to bring Private Ryan and send him home so that his family doesn't lose another son. Of course, if you've seen the movie, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, but if you've seen it, you'll know that Tom Hanks, Captain John Miller, has a group of men, and they go in to save this Private Ryan, and in the end, pretty much all of them die saving Private Ryan. Private Ryan lives But Captain John Miller is shot in a final battle scene, and there's this powerful moment where John Miller, Captain John Miller, played by Tom Hanks, is breathing his final breaths, and Private Ryan is standing over him. And Captain John Miller, having seen all of his men lose their lives to save Private Ryan, says to him, earn this. Do you remember that scene? Earn this. Don't let this sacrifice be in vain. Earn this by the way you live. So that scene of an aged veteran standing in front of the burial site of Captain John Miller um, is Private Ryan recounting and asking the question, have I lived my life in a worthy way in light of this sacrifice? In a lot of ways, that's what Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is. King Solomon has set out to Um, enjoy life and to learn from life. And in Ecclesiastes, he basically does it in a way without referencing God. He's going to try and enjoy life apart from God's commands, and he's going to try and establish wisdom that comes from just perceiving the world around him without necessarily beginning with God's revelation of himself. It's a pursuit to find meaning. I had a friend who's an atheist, who's still an atheist, and I was talking with him about how I think that Rejecting belief in God leads to a loss of basic human values. It's a worldview known as nihilism. You may have heard that um, philosophy before. If you haven't, it simply means nothing. It's a philosophy of, of nothingness. There, there are well-known thinkers throughout human history who've recognized that without a God above, there can be no objective meaning or purpose below. So I, I've often shared with friends who are skeptics that I think that really they need to come to terms with their own nihilism if they reject God. In fact, there's a, a book written by a Duke professor, a guy named Alex Rosenberg, and I made mention of it the other night. It's a really helpful book because it illustrates what a lot of atheists are unwilling 
to say, Alex Rosenberg, who teaches philosophy at Duke, in his book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, says that in the absence of God, the only way we can know things about the world is through science, and if science can't prove it, then it doesn't exist. It's just a helpful illusion that evolution has led us to adopt, and the illusions, he says, that we've adopted that aren't really true are things like the idea that we are persons, the idea that we make real decisions, the idea that history has any meaning at all, and the idea that there are such things as moral distinctions, that moral categories are real, to call one thing good and another thing evil, he says is simply an illusion because there's no scientific foundation for it. And he argues in the book that we all should be nihilist. We should recognize there's no objective meaning or purpose, but his kind of final point is you should be a nihilist, but you should be a nice nihilist. But the obvious question to that is why? Why be a nice nihilist based on his worldview? And my atheist friend wrote back to me and he said, I think I've found it. You always talk about nihilism. I found nihilism in the Bible. King Solomon says over and over again, it's all meaningless. And I said, you're actually absolutely right. Because King Solomon was wrestling with a world in which he was losing meaning because he wasn't focusing on God. So we're not saying that that somehow atheists are the only people who struggle with nihilism. Even Christians, when we take our eyes off God, we lose um, a focus on what really matters and where meaning comes from. So Solomon over and over again says this is meaningless. This is also a reminder if you study Ecclesiastes, and this morning I read through the book from beginning to end. It's a short book, but I read through it again just in preparation to give a talk about these few verses in Ecclesiastes 12, and it's a reminder that even for people who want to please God, that life can be confusing and life can be challenging and life can be messy. Have you experienced that? Even as people who want to love God, sometimes it can be hard to make sense of it. And so Solomon ends by, by bringing things back to a couple very simple points. In the midst of confusion, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? <laughs> in the midst of all of that, in the midst of your own loss, in the midst of your own disappointment, in the midst of your own struggles, how do we find meaning and purpose in life? And Solomon says, look, we could get confused trying to figure out all the complexities of life. Life is messy, but he ends by giving us a couple very simple things that we could kind of hang our hat on if it were. Now, let me give you a few summary observations that I, I wrote down late last night just reflecting on Ecclesiastes. Here's three summary points for this whole kind of experiment that Solomon sets out to and what he learns. First of all, it is better to listen and learn than to live and learn. It's better to listen and learn than to live and learn. I heard a preacher say that years ago, and in thinking about Ecclesiastes, I think that we would all recognize it's better to listen and learn from the mistakes of others like Solomon. It's better to listen to the Word of God and learn than to live and learn. I'm not asking you to raise your hand, but I wonder if, if I did. Don't. I'm not trying to embarrass you. How many of you would admit you've had to often live and learn rather than listen and learn? In fact, that's why Solomon targets Ecclesiastes 12 at young people. We'll look at that in just a moment. It's better to listen and learn than to live and learn. We certainly learn that by reading Ecclesiastes. Here's a second observation. 
And this is a glorious one. There is hope for those who have to learn the hard way. There is hope for those who have to learn the hard way. Solomon had to learn the hard way. And maybe you're sitting here today, and if you were honest, you are doubting the the goodness of God's commands, and you're just trying life out on your own, and you're going to see how much this can work out for you apart from that. And and what you have a, a sneaky suspicion that God's ways actually might be best, and yet you're flirting with sin and with temptation, and I would just want you to know that you're in good company because all of us struggle with this pull to live for ourselves. And we always have to be reminded that God's ways are indeed the best ways. We may have to learn that the hard way, but the Bible shows us one beautiful thing about God's character, and that's this, God loves repentance. Whenever, wherever, whomever, God loves repentance, and it's never too late to quit doing it your way and to submit to God's ways. There's hope for those who have to learn the hard way. If you read the Bible, you quickly discover that God loves idiots. Amen? Have you ever thought about it? God does not have that much to work with. It's us. It's us. Um, but through the power of his spirit and the power of his word, he can change us. And he can, he can set us free to live lives that please him. Even though we struggle and our hearts are prone to wander, that's a, from a hymn, right? Even the hymn writer recognizes that we often want to try it our way. We don't like the idea that someone's the boss over us. We don't like someone telling us this is how you have to do it. There's hope for those who have to learn the hard way. And I would imagine there are many of you here who would recognize, praise God, in the midst of me, my waywardness and my wondering, um, God still was gracious with me. And maybe there's some of you here who would say, could God really take me back on such terms? I've, even as a Christian, maybe I've rejected him, I've ignored his word, I've been indulging in things that I know are wrong and they don't satisfy I heard one preacher say that sin is a lot like juicy fruit gum. Juicy fruit gum, the juiciest gum in all of gumdom, right? Just the the sheer smell of juicy fruit elicits, you know, an explosive, um, you know, saliva buds. I mean, if I smell juicy fruit, I crave it. It's, It's amazing. You put it in your mouth, and it's an explosion of flavor for about 10 seconds. And then it tastes like wet cardboard. And you're faced with a dilemma, do I swallow it? I've been told it stays in my body forever, which isn't actually true. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm still a middle schooler at heart. and so I, Or do I spit it out? But the truth is we recognize that, that, that the enjoyment of juicy fruit is very short-lived. And sin is a lot like that, but it's not funny, right? So it's better to listen and learn than to live and learn second There is hope for those who have to learn the hard way. It's never too late to repent. In fact, that's a theme in in Ecclesiastes, um, that if you're alive, you have this opportunity to respond to God. You see that coming up in different ways. Here's the third thing. The end of the matter makes sense of all that matters. The end of the matter makes sense of all that matters. Solomon gets to the end, and he he instructs young people to consider the end and to let that shape the way they begin. The end of the matter 
make sense of all that matters. So look back at Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Let me just read through this chapter, make a few comments, and then we're going to end by ending with a passage out of the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 15, in which the Apostle Paul quotes Ecclesiastes. Solomon writes, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. The two points of my passage of my sermon, if you will, out of Ecclesiastes 12, the first point would be remember your Creator in the days of your youth, Ecclesiastes 12.1, and then the second point would be fear God. These are the two simple ways in which Solomon tells us in a confusing world with hearts that can often be confused because of our own waywardness that the two simple things we should constantly come back to again and again are remembering our Creator and fearing God and keeping his commands. So Solomon writes, remember also your your creator in the days of your youth. This is not a good passage probably to preach perhaps at a nursing home, right? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. That ship has sailed, right? This is, those days are over. However, there's hope for all people in this passage as we'll see at the end. The command to fear God is given in direct response to him, contemplating on how, we- how weariness is a part of life. That The command to fear God and keep his commands is a command that's open to all people, the young and the old alike. But for young people, if you will remember God in the days of your youth, it's better to listen and learn than to live and learn. Also, the way in which Solomon is telling us to remember our creator is kind of similar to if you remember in the days after 9-11, people would have bumper stickers. They were all over the place that said, remember 9-11. And what they weren't saying is, let's think about all the horrors of that day necessarily. I think they were drawing attention to the heroism and the sacrifice. And in light of what happened that day, that we should be a different nation, that we should be thankful for those who gave of their lives to save others. And in a similar way, Solomon is saying that by remembering God as young people, you are actually living your life different because you remember Him. Solomon describes how difficult and painful it is to age. I'm 42 years old. I know that to the teenagers that sounds ancient, and to some others in the church, it just sounds like I'm a young whippersnapper. Um, So I'm somewhere perhaps in the middle, age is relative, right? Um, But I do know this, I've lived long enough to know that I don't like getting older. In fact, I go to the gym a few times a week just to run on the elliptical. It's not very masculine, I know. Um, But I I said to a friend of mine who goes to the gym at the same time, I said, you know, this is really just becoming, increasingly becoming just damage control. I don't feel like I'm progressing anything, it's just merely damage control. Um, I now have to shave my ears. Hair grows out of my ears. That didn't happen when I was young. If I sit for a long time, the thought of getting up is enough to dissuade me from doing it because getting up can hurt. So it's better to just stay seated, right? The other day I was with a friend of mine and I jokingly picked up his glasses and I said, let's see how bad your eyesight is. And I put them on. I shared this with the the youth group the other night. I put them on saying, ha ha, let's see how bad his eyesight is. And I put them on like, whoa. I could see, see stuff in the, back, in the back of the room. So I have glasses that come in next week. 
he, he got the last laugh on that one. But Solomon begins describing to describe this process of what it is like to get old in very poetic ways. Look at Ecclesiastes 12, um, verse 1 again. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come. And the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now, it's interesting that he calls old age the evil years, you know. And then he describes what it's like, verse 2, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease, seems like he's talking about teeth here, the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look through the windows are dimmed. You're losing teeth, you're losing eyesight. And the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low. So on the one hand, you can't hear as well. And on the other hand, one rises up at the sound of a bird. And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also. He talks about a paranoia that sometimes can be a part of old age. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails. Because a man is because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about in the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, all these metaphors for death, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. And his point there is he's admonishing young people to recognize that their youth is a window of opportunity to serve God and to do amazing things for God. Remember God while you're young because in your old age you'll not be able to do the kinds of things that you are free to do now while you are young. And often if you don't remember God in your youth, in your old age you will have a life that's filled with regrets. So remember him while you're young. Make a commitment now while you're young that you want to please God. It makes me think of a, a young man named Pierce, a star football player, and he was wrestling with feeling a call to become a preacher. And so after his final home game, his senior year, he was wrestling with God. What is God's will? Do I go and pursue a football athletic scholarship or do I go to Bible college and prepare for ministry? And so after a senior game, he just hung out until everybody left. True story. He um, waited until the, the stadium was empty, or the bleachers, whatever it would be in this case. And he went out into the middle of the field with nobody around late after the game was over. In the middle of the football field, he got down on his knees, and he began praying, God, what is your will for my life? I want to submit to your will. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And then he laid out prostrate on the field and was just humbling himself before God. And then he felt like he wasn't low enough. So he took his hand and started digging out some dirt and put his face down in that hole. He said, God, I want to do your will. And he sensed on that football field that God was calling him to preach. And he made a commitment. He would obey God. And as a young man, he committed his life to the Lord. He prepared for ministry. Before he died, he had shared an audience with every president in the lifetime of his ministry. His books have been translated into various languages. His sermons are still heard to this day. 
Adrian Pierce Rogers, as a young man, committed his way to the Lord. And the Lord used him greatly. I'm reminded of another story, someone I knew, a young lady named Megan. The first church I served at was in Nashville, Tennessee. That was on full-time staff. I worked at Highview, and I worked at a church here in town as an intern at Oak Hill Baptist. But my first full-time job was in Nashville, Tennessee. And I had a young lady in our youth group. She had really curly hair. Her nickname was Icebox, which I think is a movie reference. Um, But I didn't realize that they gave her that nickname because she was a pretty tough cookie, right? And so it's my first church. I had just graduated from seminary with my Master of Divinity. I had it hanging nicely on the wall. Um, From time to time, I'd look at that, that degree from seminary and remind myself that I am a Master of Divinity. I have mastered divinity, which is quite impressive. (laughs) And I remember the day that that I realized that that diploma didn't mean all that much because I'd only been there a short while. And Megan Icebox had asked to meet with me. And, you know, being a master of divinity, I was happy to meet with her and to break off some wisdom and happily dispense that to her. And I thought, she is just going to be hanging on my every word. This is what I trained to do. This is my moment. So I met her at church during uh, choir practice. My wife was in the choir, and we sat right on the front row talking, and she brought a a friend of hers with her, a friend named Sarah. And I thought, this is going to be great. Megan brought a notepad. I'm like, wow, when you're a master of divinity, people write down what you have to say. This is good. And uh, I said, let's talk. And she pulled out that legal notepad, and there were already things written on it. I'm like, well, it's supposed to be blank. Like, I'm going to tell you what to write there. And she began sharing with me a long list that her and Sarah and a few other kids in the youth group had written about things they didn't like about me or my ministry. They didn't like the youth logo. They didn't like my sermons. And I remember being crushed. (laughs) I went back to my office, and I looked at the Master of Divinity, and I thought, that's a joke. It's a facade. They told me I was a master. I'm a master of nothing. Um, Icebox hates everything I'm doing. And uh, fast forward a few years, um, the Lord allowed me and Megan to have a a good relationship in spite of the fact that she had completely broken my master of divinity heart. And a few years later, it was her senior year in high school, and we were in um, Toronto in Canada, and we were doing a ministry over spring break. And it was towards the, spring break was towards the end of the year, I guess that's always the case, but she only had like a month left of school, and we were working with homeless teenagers in Canada, believe it or not. And we would go to places where they would feed about 300 teenagers, and the first 50 teenagers to get there would have a warm place to sleep. The other 250 would go back out into the cold. And so we were trying to do ministry in a context in which most of the people who were there were pretty angry when they discovered they didn't have a bed to sleep in. And it was really heartbreaking for all kinds of various reasons. And I remember Megan sharing with me late one night, tears coming down from her eyes, She said, I feel like I've wasted my time in high school. She went to John Overton High School, which is a large high school in Nashville, right next to our church. I worked at Judson Baptist Church. It was right next to John Overton High School. Our parking lots actually were right next to each other. They would use our parking lot for football games. We would use their parking lot for like Easter Sunday or for for large events. Megan was the, um, the leader of FCA at her school, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Megan had orchestrated that the baccalaureate service was held at our church. Megan had all kinds of influence, and she told me, I feel like I've wasted my high school experience. 
And I said, Megan, I'm going to pray for you and pray that the Lord will use this next month. And on the inside, I'm thinking, Megan, you've not wasted. I've seen the Lord use you. But she felt like God had something for her to do in the remaining month. So I prayed for her. And uh, we get back to Nashville. And a month later, when high school is over, the first day of the first week of summer, we would take our teenagers to youth camp. And our idea was that allows them to invite their friends from school who aren't believers if we go immediately after. And so just a month later, we're going to youth camp. Megan brought a young man with her, a guy named Will, who was a junior in high school, football player. And um, Will was just a, a stud of a guy. And on the very first night of youth camp, Will came forward and got saved. The Lord opened his heart. He responded to the gospel. Now, he didn't just get saved, like Will got saved. You know what I'm saying? Like he's slinging snot, he's crying, this big old football player. And I'm sitting there and I've got my hand on his shoulder and I'm talking to Megan. I'm like, you prayed. Remember in Canada you were praying? Here's the answer to, to, to your prayers. And I could tell Megan wasn't fully convinced. And I'm like, on the inside, I'm thinking, school's over. Like if you're looking for something to, you know, Say, this is what God used. This is it. This is amazing. He crossed over from death to life. And I could tell Megan still felt like God had something for her to accomplish. Fast forward to the end of the summer. The Lord had made it clear that April, my wife and I, were, um, had an opportunity in Louisville, Kentucky. And we felt like the time was right for us to make a transition to pursue another degree. And so we were moving. It was my last Sunday showed up at church. There was this long hallway that connected our educational building to the worship center. At the end of that long hallway, I saw Megan Icebox, and she's crying. And there was a part of me, to be honest, that felt a little validated. She hated me when I came, and now she's crying. Maybe I am a master of divinity after all. And uh, she came over, and we, st <laughs> we started talking, and I realized she wasn't crying for us. She was okay with us leaving, apparently. Um, but in the late hours of that Saturday night before that Sunday morning, so I guess it would be in the early hours of Sunday morning, um, a young man she knew really well, Stephen Langston, who at Overton High School, they graduated together. They were both going to the same college. Um, she wasn't sure if he was a believer. She had shared her faith with him, and she was actually praying that she'd have the opportunity to share the gospel with him in college more um, to continue to have a witness. He was named Mr. Johnny O. John Overton High School, Mr. Johnny O was kind of like the most popular kid. He was a star a baseball player on their team. That year, Overton High School went to state. They lost at state, but they had an undefeated season up until they went to state. And in the early hours of that morning, he was in an alcohol-related accident. And um, was taken to an area hospital. They called his parents, and when they called his parents and told them the news, his dad had a heart attack and was sent to the same hospital. Um, Stephen was pronounced dead um, a few hours later. His father was still in the hospital, though, and Megan was beside herself. And she said, I, I feel like God wants me to do something. My wife and I were had a U-Haul waiting as soon as the service was over, we were driving to Louisville. So I just told Megan, I'll pray for you. And we prayed right then. And it wouldn't be until a few months later that I even heard what happened. What did happen is in the middle of our going away service, Megan slipped out and she called everyone in her speed dial. 
And she said, I don't know what else to do. Let's just meet at the flagpole and pray. If you are familiar with C at the pole, that was her one thing she could think of. She said, let's just meet at the flagpole. So she called everybody she could call on her speed dial. They called everybody they could call. And then it seemed to kind of get out of control because all kinds of people were going to show up at the flagpole. So she was able to um, get a hold of the school principal. She looked at the weather forecast. It was supposed to rain really bad the next morning. She asked him for permission if they could meet inside. He told her that he felt like it would be um, a breach of the separation of church and state, and it would just be probably not wise, so he wouldn't let her in. That next morning, they were planning to meet at 7. Megan got there about 30 minutes early and realized there were already scores of cars at the school. It was pouring down rain. She makes her way towards the flagpole, just thinking they'll talk there in the rain. And she sees by the high school doors an SUV sitting inside of it as the school principal. He, seeing Megan, gets out of his car and immediately goes to her and he said, Megan, um, I'm going to open up the auditorium. Would you like a microphone? So they moved the event inside. The baseball coach, Stephen's coach, got up and said a few words. He said, but I'm really, um, this whole event is because of one young lady, Megan Stevens, and he welcomed her to the stage. And Megan took that microphone, and she said, there's only one name given under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. And she shared the gospel. There were hundreds of people there, some estimated five or 600. In the audience was Stephen's dad, who had just been released from the hospital. What I see in this passage is, is this reminder that your youth is a window of opportunity to do great things for God, so don't waste it. Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. And then finally, the second point is fear God and keep His commandments. Solomon concludes, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Now, in the Old Testament, this is about as good as it gets. The Old Testament is inspired by God, it's powerful, and it is a part of God's revelation of Himself, which is sufficient for all things pertaining to life and godliness. But we recognize as Christians that this isn't the end of the story. And so if all we had was to remember our Creator and fear God and keep His commandments, we would still struggle with the fact that we don't always fear God and keep His commandments. So what do we do? So the Apostle Paul, I'll close with this, the Apostle Paul draws on the themes of Ecclesiastes in 1 Corinthians 15. So if you'll turn there, we'll end our time in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul in verse 32 quotes King Solomon. Now some people will say that King Solomon actually, or that Paul is quoting um, a playwright, a play, a, a um, early poet, Menander, when he says in verse 32, what do I gain, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I've, I've fought with beasts at Ephesus? Paul's talking about if Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, he's been risking his life to preach the gospel. And he says, what benefit is it? And if the dead are not raised, and here he quotes Solomon. And the reason I say he quotes Solomon, Menander was, was quoting Solomon because Solomon preceded Menander by hundreds of years. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, 
for tomorrow we die. So on the one hand, Paul says, if we don't, aren't raised, if Jesus wasn't raised, and if we're not going to be raised, the best we could do is enjoy life, to live for the simple pleasures of life. And then in a really odd way, the Apostle Paul then in verse 33 gives another quotation, and it's a quotation about being good. So he says the best we could do is either live for pleasure or, verse 33, don't be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Now that doesn't, if you've ever read that, that kind of feels like, what? And I think what Paul is doing is showing us that the two ways we could try and find meaning for ourselves is either in pleasure or in trying to be good on our own, this kind of moral system. And he's showing us that both of those, if the resurrection is true, both of the, or is not true, both of those are meaningless. Your best efforts, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, your best efforts are still in vain. Your pleasures, apart from God, are in vain. So that's why Paul goes on to say, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now skip ahead to verse 50 through 58. This is where the Apostle Paul shows us that, yes, we should remember God in our youth, and yes, we should fear God, but our hope is that God will redeem our lives. And at the end of our lives, it's not based on our best efforts. It's not based on us trying to kind of carve out meaning for ourselves. But our meaning is found in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why the Christian need not say that Jesus has risen and nothing else matters. As we're moving into Easter season, preparing our hearts to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we should be reminded that the Christian should say, not Jesus has risen and nothing else matters, but rather, Jesus has risen and now everything matters. We don't live in a world that, where nihilism is true. We live in a world that's soaked with meaning because of the living and dying and rising of Jesus. So let me read these words in conclusion, verse 50 through 58. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, which Solomon talks about how it's perishable, and the pains of growing old. This perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, and always abounding in the work of the Lord. Pay attention to this last line. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We find our meaning in the resurrection of Jesus. So remember your Creator Fear God and keep his commandments. 
and find your meaning for life in the resurrection of Jesus that changes everything. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your words to us this morning. We come before you as broken people who desperately need your grace. God, I thank you for Solomon, whose life was filled with so many mistakes. And we see in his life this beautiful picture that we could still come back to you and remember you and allow you to change our lives. We could fear you and keep your commands because Jesus died for our sins. And he's risen from the dead. And in his resurrection, he gives us forgiveness and strength. And in this, we find our hope. Lord, I thank you that even with the funeral yesterday, we're reminded that Christians don't grieve the way the rest of the world grieves, as those without hope. So Lord, we pray that the resurrection of Jesus would fill our lives with meaning and purpose. And Lord, until he comes, I pray that you would help us to increasingly become more like him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.